Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. I'm Alex Clark, and this month I'm very excited to be speaking to Irvin Welsh about his new novel, The Sex Lives of Siamese Twins. But first, I'm joined by Jonathan Green, the world's foremost lexicographer of slang, who has written the how, the why, and the what of his singular job in his new book, Odd Job Man. Thanks so much for coming in, Jonathan. Now, you've written... So many books, works of lexicography, collections of slang, oral histories. Tell us about this memoir. Tell us why Odd Job Man has come to you now. I've written the big book, as I always think of it, the Green book, Green's Dictionary of Slang, which is big. It's 6,200 pages long, so I can get away with that one. (laughs) And I don't know, I I think I was sitting there around 2009 when it started and just thinking, people always say to me, why did you get into slang? Why is it you want to spend your entire life finding another word for prostitute, for lovemaking, for vagina, for penis, for whatever it might be? And I thought, very good question. I've never worked that one out. And I thought, well, my joke was always that it was, in fact, the prostitutes thing, which is for First I did it for myself, then I did it for my friends, then I do it for money. And I would always say at the end of this, but of course there's no money in dictionaries, which is still true. But I thought this isn't really true, and I didn't ever really do it for myself, but myself is completely and totally intertwined with it, the making of dictionaries, and with slang. And, well, let's jot some stuff down and see what comes out of it. So were you surprised when you started to sort of disentangle your life, set it down, try to trace patterns and what happened and when things happened and came to you. Were you surprised to find out the answer? Hindsight being its 2020 thing, it all of course fits together like the most perfect of jigsaws which has all the pieces. But yes, I mean I was constantly taking notes and I'd suddenly rush up at three in the morning and so on. It is not, I should stress, an autobiography. It's a very impressionist or imagist or whatever the correct word is. It's me sort of yammering on. But it does start with my birth and it does try and... It's, it's, it's totally dictated by books. I mean, so, you know, it's not about what school X was like or girlfriend Y was like or whatever it might be. What it's about is very much what I was reading at the time. I mean, I'm just a terrible old nerd <laughs> and, and without the technical skills. Actually, that started in childhood though, didn't it? And I, I'm totally. sure lots and lots of people would have the same experience of this, but I was immediately struck by it. When you were sort of talking about slang in particular, you start reading those school books, don't you? You know, Storky and Co and um, Saki and all those kind of things. All that you collect sort of... Well, I mean, it's subconscious. It's no, I mean, there is a line where I put in the book was I actually in my mind making a database when I was at prep school in Lincolnshire in, in 1959 to the 62 uh, and of course I wasn't but they had the most wonderful school library which had all the popular reading of the last 50 years so it was Sapper, Bulldog Drummond stuff like that, P.G. Woodhouse who I'd never encountered, people of that nature and it became clear to me again I look back and say it became clear to me but there was some kind of sense that the fun stuff and I'm talking about language, is not the standard English. It's this interesting slang. It's this man Woodhouse who uses the word Rani Gazoo. Now, reading it when you're that age, which was 10 or 11, you don't know what it means. It's a bit like reading a foreign language and you have to work it out from the context. I read a lot of French now, at least I read Simonon, which is which is, has a 2,000-word vocabulary. Fortunately, the 2,000 words that I 
mainly no. But it is, again, you're always working from context. And when you're 10 or 11, that's how you're doing it. And going through Woodhouse, who, of course, I mean, for a lexicographer, is, is, is on one hand wonderful and on one hand horrible, because he will use the word ranigazoo, but he'll also use use some word like hippie and in the same sentence, because he had no feeling that there was nece- we, we, we needed to worry about historical reality. Mm. Then Woodhouse is not very much <laughs> very real. No. But Sapper was interesting. Sapper fascinated me because I'm Jewish, but I, I, I it, he's the most as people will know, the most appalling anti-Semite. But, I mean, I sort of, it didn't permeate. I was just enjoying the stories. There is a world of difference between a childhood interest in, and fascination with slang that may develop into uh, something that you study academically later, something that you're very interested in perhaps all your life, and devoting your life to this business of amassing all these words, of scouring the world, literature, the languages of other countries for slang. How did that happen? I think I can, I, it's very much... I think, I think it's very simple. On the one hand, it's marketing and it's niche and, and it's 1980-something. And I am looking at my predecessor, Eric Partridge, who was known as the king of slang and dominated the 20th, late 20th century. Well, 1937, his first book came out. And Partridge was born in 1894 and I was born in 1948. And in a way, that tells as much of the story one needs. What I'm trying to say is that he'd already written his first big dictionary, which he called the Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English, and he would not allow American in. Now, in 1937, that might have been acceptable, but it certainly wasn't in 1984 when my first one came out. And I could see, and he couldn't do, he didn't understand teenagers. He didn't understand the 60s. He didn't understand drugs. Any person who came anywhere near it, he'd read one article. I don't know, I'm being unfair, but it's true, and it reflects basically himself. And there's the most embarrassing... And I mean, actually, one more thing is that he was able to write nigger without any comment as, it, as regarding its, its status as a pejorative word. On the other hand, when he wanted to write shit, he wrote S blank T. And I have reversed that, and that's very much typical of, of the world, the, the difference between him and me. But the, if there was a tiny little trigger over and above that... So I thought marketing-wise, niche-wise... Ha, huh, there's something to be done it here. It didn't exist, in yes, other it, words. It, it, there was nothing, this resource didn't exist. He hadn't, what, what I wanted to do, he hadn't touched, or not, not really. The other thing was the word nofka. And the word nofka is a very simple word, but Partridge looks at it, and it's, he's going, hmm, means a prostitute. Maybe it's an illusion of the two words naughty and girl. And I thought... Oh no, it ain't. It's Does that word, sound? It's it's plausible. the word nofka means means prostitute in Yiddish. It's as simple as that. And I thought, ooh, I can do this. This is very much a part of it, though, isn't it? The slang of any country, and particularly a country that has had mass migrations from all sorts of places in the world over centuries, um, is the history of other languages, isn't it? It's never just just its own thing. English, despite all the all the prescriptive lexicographers and linguists, is of course a wonderful mongrel language. Mm. Slang is a subset of English and is as mongrel as anything. I mean, the, the, the cutting edge of slang in London at the moment is something called multi-ethnic London English or multicultural London English, and that is a mixture of good old Cockney, um, but, you know, invention... Basically, it, it's created by third-generation young black people. Um, it's, but, but it's the first... I mean, black slang from America has always been within you know, the, the English slang culture since at least 
World War Two. But this is this is indigenous. This is homemade. As I say, it's a, it, it's got Cockney in it. It's got rhyming slang. But it's also and it's got Jamaican patois in it. And it's got hip hop in it. And it's got American in it. And the interesting thing is, it's the first slang of this sort that's really cross cultures and cross and, and cross colours. And that's and that just underlines what you're saying is that it's this huge this great melange, this mishmash. But what is also interesting is that because of the internet now, let me give you an anecdote, is my eldest son took me up to a high place, which was the top of the block he lives in, and he looked round and he said, look at all those tower blocks. And I said, yes. And he said, well, they've all got their own slang. And then he said, you're not going to get it. <laughs> and of course he's right. But yeah. the, 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 the wonderful, I mean, on the one hand, the, the internet's brought us the ability to find out what it is. And of course the internet has no page numbers and no, no restrictions. I have restrictions. I'm 66 on Sunday. <laughs> What does strike me as something that you have to address and be very kind of clear about at the start is that you're never going to do it all. Just what you were saying, really. You cannot catalogue everything. And even if you did, language just isn't fixed, is it? It will change in, in a kind of flash, in a heartbeat. I think there's, there's, there's a wonderful... One of the things... I, you asked me what I, what I discovered in a different context when I was doing it. One of the things was that quote from Samuel Beckett, we must fail better. Mm. And that's the best we can hope for as lexicographers. And that's true of the Oxford English Dictionary. It was true of Dr Johnson, who, if you read his... his the, the important parts of Dr Johnson's introduction are not about lexicographers being harmless drudges. It's much more about realising the language changes. And he was commissioned, after all, to fix the language. And people treated him as if he had fixed it. But if you read the introduction proper, properly, there's a lot of stuff in there. I, I wrote a book called Chasing the Sun, which is a history of lexicography. And Chasing the Sun comes from his line that's saying what the lexicographer is is like the tribe... This was a different era, you could use these imagery. Um, this tribe who think the sun's on the top of a mountain, you chase it up to the top of the mountain, and goodness me, the sun's moved mm. on to the top of the next mountain. That's what we're doing, so we can only fail better. I, I don't think it's ever worried me that. I, I mean, now I am older, and this sounds like whinging, but, but I don't like the fact that I know that there is a limited time, because the internet has really turned things upside down. I mean, what was it John Lennon said about going out to buy a fag and then didn't go, come back for a few years um, when he left Yoko Ono? I mean, I went out to write a slang dictionary and 17 years I, later I came back and instead of thinking I'd have at least reached one of the mountain top of one, the mountain had turned upside down mm. and I'm just looking up at this, somewhere up there there's, there's some light. But the internet has changed the whole ballgame. Do you think, I mean, obviously that's true in the sense, of course, that there's this huge resource uh, apart from anything else. There's this way that we can communicate with one another and, and store things and have access to them. But also it strikes me that when you look at the internet, something like social media, you actually see the creation of slang and it, have, it moves very, very quickly. Someone makes a little joke, someone compounds it and suddenly it's a sort of new word. It seems to happen in front of our eyes. The speed is fascinating. I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and, and if anything underlines the fact that I'm never going to get it all, <laughs> that's it. And that's... I mean, I think for me as a lexicographer... I, I, I find it more interesting, to be absolutely honest, to go backwards. Again, the internet, it may be bringing you social media, but it's also bringing you these amazing archival databases. And suddenly you can read stuff that, yes, you could have read if you'd had access to the right university library and had five years to read or, you know, to drag them out and get whatever it might be. But now I can get that bingo. Um, slang is thematic. I mean... Lovemaking is always, I'm afraid, in slang because it's a very misogynist language. Man hits woman. Vagina's always going to be something that frightens men. 
Penis is always going to be a toy for a boy and so on and so forth. <laughs> People who are mad are always going to be not all there and that kind of thing. And although the latest, most cutting edge of slang, and this is true of slangs, in other words, non-English ones, but I only deal in English, are going to be dealing with the same themes. You're still basically... Man is still hitting woman, I'm afraid, even if he... And you can see that you over and over again. The fact that it's being coined in 2014 is almost irrelevant. There is no... Uh, we haven't managed to come up... You can see those images in the earliest words in 16th century slang, WAP, which means to hit and means to make love. And it's, it, it's there then, WAP, and it's, as we know, it's, it, it's there 1500, you know, 500 years later. These things don't change. It's very salutary to, to talk to you. Uh, for someone like me, who's, alas, a, a real kind of nostalgic, uh, and... The other day, for example, I said to someone, I think under the age of 30, uh, who was going on holiday, oh, you must be feeling demob happy. And they didn't know what I meant at all. And I had a pang of kind of real feeling that the world was passing by. But you would tell me, don't feel like that. New stuff is happening, right? Um, you know, the more it changes, the more it's the same, as they say. <laughs> I mean, it, that's, that's my point, is that, is that I keep seeing... It would be fascinating if the F word suddenly started meaning do the washing... But it ain't going to happen. <laughs> and, 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 and the synonyms are not, as I say, are always going to be a bit, probably this underlying violence. And so on. it doesn't have to be sex, but I'm afraid the major themes in slang are sex yes, related. Yes, of course and, they are. I mean, I see slang, as I say in the book, as, as what Freud would have called the id. It's this unrestrained self in which we say all the things about the things that we're, the things we're not meant to say about the things we're not meant to do, but enjoy. So I think it's the id. I think it's us at our. It's a linguistic representation of us at our most human, our most honest, our most unmasked, our most unadorned. And I think if there's one real reason I love it so much, it's that. I just want to ask you one final question because it also strikes me that what you've done, your life's work, has been so sort of communal in a way. You've attempted to sort of gather together something that we share, that our demotic. Um, and yet in the book you say, "I am a soloist," and you make the point that you do this in kind of isolation that it's a it's a solo work and that you in a way hold yourself at a distance i can't immerse myself among the slang users because remember i am 66 on in a few days then if i'm lucky i'll be 76 who knows but mr and ms slang are always 16 and the gap becomes greater and greater i i mean when you're using it when you're enjoying it when you're creating it you certainly don't have time to write it down. You need some old fool like me to be doing that. <laughs> but I'm not going to be part of that. I don't do field work. I, I am a soloist. I'm an only child. I'm Jewish, which is which perhaps I harp on more in the book than one needs to. But it, I felt, I, I mean, it was an era when, when I was at boarding school, I was the only one. And these things, they, they, they get in there. No, nobody was nasty to me. That's not the point. But I've always quite reveled, I'm afraid, in, in, in my solo artistry. I'm very sociable. I, li I like giving parties. I like going to parties. Da 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 da. But the fact remains, I'm really very. I, what I do, I've thought many times, sitting there by myself, finding this stuff out, cataloguing it, putting it where it should be, making these dictionaries, is what I should be doing. And who can ask more? Jonathan, thank you so much. Irvin Welsh was born in Edinburgh and first came to public attention with his debut novel Trainspotting, which was quickly adapted for stage and screen with great success. His other novels include Filth, 
Glue, and most recently Skag Boys. He'll be here to talk about his new novel, The Sex Lives of Siamese Twins, a folie à deux set in Miami, centering on a lesbian fitness trainer and an overweight artist. Before I speak to the man himself, enjoy listening to the first chapter of the book. The Sex Lives of Siamese Twins by Irvin Welsh Read by Penelope Rollins and Lorelai King Part 1. Transplants Chapter 1. Leper Colony Two, four, six, eight. who do we appreciate? Numbers are the great American obsession. How do we measure up? Our crumbling economy. Growth percentage, consumer spending, industrial output, GDP, GNP, the Dow Jones. As a society, homicides, rapes, teen pregnancies, child poverty, illegal immigrants, drug addicts, registered and otherwise. As individuals, height, weight, hips, waist, bust, BMI. But the number in my head right now is the one that causes most of the problems. Two, the argument with Miles... 6'1", 210 pounds, was trivial, yeah. But containing enough discord to prevent me spending the night at his midtown equals ghost town apartment. The jerk had moaned all evening about his bad back, talking himself out of any action with that crybaby bullshit. As his eyes grew moister, so my pussy became more arid. Not so fucking difficult to comprehend. He actually shushed me during the last few minutes of an episode of The Big Bang Theory, like, Come on, dude. Also, his chihuahua, Chico, was yelping belligerently, and he wouldn't stick him in another room, insisting the bug-eyed little asshole would soon settle down. Well, fuck that. He didn't take it well when I opted to split, making like a sulky toddler, all stiff posture and pouting lips. Like, man the fuck up. Some guys are just not cool enough to do anger. Chico changing his routine by jumping onto my knee, despite me continually lowering him back onto the floor, has a bigger set of balls. So I'm heading back to South Beach, a couple minutes short of 3.30 a.m. The night had been calm earlier, a hanging moon and a rash of stars providing shards of light which cut through the deep mauve sky. Then, almost as soon as I start up my wheezy 1998 Caddy DeVille, inherited from my mom, I'm aware of the shift in the weather. I'm not concerned, as I have Joan Jett's I Hate Myself for Loving You rattling out of my speakers. But by the time I get onto the Julia Tuttle Causeway, gusts of wind are shoving at the car head on. I slow down as sheets of rain batter the windshield, causing me to squint through the rapid swishes of the wipers. Just as it suddenly eases to a drizzle and the speedometer creeps back to 50, Two men emerge out of the now starless, inky dark, running right down the middle of the almost deserted causeway toward me, waving their arms. The closest one blows hard, hamster-cheeked under the white flood of the overhead highway lights, his crazed eyes bursting into view. At first, I think it's some kind of a joke. Ship-faced frat boys or crazy druggies playing a fucked-up daredevil game. Then a stark, fuck, hammers into my consciousness as I sense it's some sort of elaborate carjacking, and I tell myself, don't stop, Lucy, let the pricks move aside. But they don't. So I brake hard, wrenching the car into a jarring slide. I'm holding on to the wheel. It feels like a titan is trying to tear it from my grasp. Then a thump and a rustling sound, and I'm watching one of the men tumble over my hood. 
The car slows to a halt, thrusting me back in my seat as the engine cuts out, killing the CD just as Joan is about to rock the fuck out on the chorus. I'm looking around, trying to make sense of the situation. A driver in the other lane just in front of me isn't able to react so quickly. The second man ricochets off their hood, twisting in the air like a crazy ballerina and caroming along the highway. The car tears ahead into the night, making no attempt to stop. Thank the sanctified asshole of sweet baby Jesus that there's nobody else behind us. Carjackers never had balls that size, or were scared. Miraculously, the guy the other car hit, a small, chunky Latino, staggers to his feet. He's dripping with terror. It seems to override any pain he's in, as he doesn't even look at the fucker who bounced off my car. He's glaring over his shoulder back into the murky night as he hauls himself away. Then, in the rearview mirror, I see the guy I clipped, a skinny white dude. He's right up in his feet, too. Blonde hair, grease back in lank tendrils as he hobbles quickly like a semi-crippled spider toward the bushes at the median strip, dividing the downtown and beach lanes of the highway bridge. Then I see that the Latino guy has double-backed and is limping toward me. He hammers on my window, screaming, Help me! I'm frozen in my seat. The burning smell of brake pads and rubber in my nostrils, not knowing what the fuck to do. Then a third guy comes marching briskly out of the darkness, down the highway toward us. The Latino guy yelps out in pain. Perhaps the shock has worn off, hobbling to the back of the car, seeming to crouch down at the passenger rear side window. I open the door and step out, my legs shaky on the firm concrete, my stomach empty and hollow. As I do this, there's a cracking sound, and something whistles just past my left ear. I realize with a strange sense of abstraction, that it's a gunshot. I know this because of the way the third man, forming out of the mottled dark, is pointing at the car, something in his hand. It has to be a gun. He's almost alongside me, and everything freezes over as I clearly see the pistol. I feel my eyelids rolling back in a primal plea for mercy as I'm thinking, this is how it ends. But he walks right past me as if I'm invisible, even though I'm close enough to touch him, to see his glazed little ferret eye in profile and even catch a whiff of his stale body odor. But he's in dedicated pursuit of his hunkered target. Please, please, don't! Begs the Latino croucher, hunched down by the side of my car, eyes shut, head bowed, one palm extended. The gunman slowly lowers his arm, pointing the weapon at his victim, some instinct takes over, and I jump up and drop kick the asshole between his shoulder blades. He's a light, raggedy-looking guy, and he tumbles face forward toward his would-be target, dropping the pistol as he hits the asphalt. The Latino looks bewildered, then scrambles toward the gun. I get there first and kick it under the caddy, as the prey looks at me for a second, oval-mouthed, before rising and hobbling off but I'm right down on top of the gunman, slamming my weight on his back, straddling him, my bare knees skidding roughly and painfully down on the hot surface of the deserted highway, both my hands around the back of his thin, scrawny neck. He's not a big guy, white, around 5'5", 120 pounds, but he doesn't even try to resist, as I'm shouting, You crazy asshole, what the fuck do you think you're doing? 
Some broken voice baby sobs, and between them, a plaintive spiel. You don't understand. Nobody understands. As another car creeps up, then surges past us. I'm feeling that ominous vibe of one more layer of shit falling on me. I glance up and can see the Latino heading toward the bushes of the median strip in the direction of his fleeing white compadre. The thought grips me. I'm glad I'm wearing sneakers, as I was planning on gladiator stilettos to match this short denim skirt and blouse I put on to try to get Miles to think dick and forget spying. Now that this skirt is written up, I'm so fucking glad I remembered panties. Then, an excited voice squeals in my ear. I saw everything, and you are a hero. I phoned this in. I called the cops. I filmed it all on my phone. Evidence! I glance up to see a small, fat chick, eyes almost hidden by long black bangs. 5'2", maybe 5'3", and about 220 pounds. Like all overweight people, you can only speculate on her age. But I'd say late 20s. I called it in, she repeats, waving her cell phone. It's all on here. I was parked over there. She points, and I crane my neck in the direction of her car, visible under the overhead lights on the hard shoulder of the bridge, almost backed into the causeway's barrier of bushes, shrubs, and trees planted between the road and the bay. She looks at the broken, prostrate figure underneath me, my thighs that lock onto him as he shakes under his convulsive sobs. Is he crying? Are you crying, mister? He will be, I snarl. A sirens tear out and a police car screeches to a halt, swathing us in blue light. Then I'm aware of the gross smell of urine rising from the guy beneath me, turning the hot air fetid. The fat chick sings mindlessly, wrinkling her nose. It's like old alcoholic piss, where the bum in question has been drinking cheap rock gut for days. But even as the warm wetness rolls over the asphalt and makes contact with my skin knees, I'm not relinquishing my hold on this whimpering motherfucker. Then a flashlight shines in my face, and an authoritative voice tells me to stand up, slowly. I blink and see the fat chick being pulled away by a cop. I try to comply, but my body feels locked astride this pissing wretch, and I'm now conscious of the fact that I'm wearing a short skirt, straddling a urinating stranger on a highway, surrounded by cops as cars zip by. Then some rough hands tug me to my feet, the muffled cries still coming from the sad bag of bones on the deck. A short butch Latina in a uniform is in my face, her groping mitts under my armpit, pulling me harshly upward. You have to step away now! I can't use my hands and arms to steady myself or rotate or lean my torso forward, and as I stand up, I'm stepping on the guy. This is so fucking embarrassing. My friend, Grace Carrillo, is a Miami cop, and I drop her name, but I don't want her or anybody I know to see me like this. My constricting, tight, short denim skirt has ridden up into a thick, folded belt around my waist through my action of kicking and straddling this creep. Denim doesn't fall back into place just by standing up, and the fucking cops won't release their grip so I can smooth the butt of my skirt down. I gotta fix my skirt! I shout. You need to step away! The bitch shouts again. 
My underwear is visible from the back and front, and I can see the frozen, waxy faces of the cops in the headlights scrutinizing me as I step off this pants-pissing prick. I feel like tearing the bitch a new fucking asshole before I remember Grace's advice that it's always unwise to fuck with a Miami cop. For one thing, they are trained to assume that everyone is carrying a firearm. The two other cops, both male, one black, one white, cuff the sobbing gunman and yank him upright as I finally get to shimmy and smooth the skirt down. The shooter's face is pallid, his wet eyes set on the ground. I realize that he's just a kid, maybe early 20s at the most. What the fuck was going through his head? This woman is a hero! I hear the bloated chick shriek in rabbit attestation. She disarmed that guy! She points an accusation at the cuffed kid, who has gone from stone-cold assassin to pitiable wretch with a big wet stain on his pants. I feel his gross wetness on my scraped knees. He was shooting at these two men! She points over to the edge of the bridge. The fleeing cripples are now standing together, contemplating the scene. The Latino guy tries to skulk away, while the white guy has his hand over his eyes, shielding them from the harsh overhead light. Another two cops head over to them. The chunky little chick is still talking breathlessly to the Latina cop. She took the gun from him and kicked it under the car. One chubby digit indicates. Then she pushes her sweaty bangs out of her eyes, waving her phone in the other hand. It's all on here! What were you doing, stopped over there? The black cop asks her, as I catch another male white officer looking over my Cadillac and then back at me, perplexed. I felt sick driving, the fat chick says. I had to pull over. I guess it was something I ate, but I saw everything. And she's playing back the video recording on her phone to the cops. Another car hit one of those men too, but they didn't even stop. Even as I feel the drumbeat of my heart pump more than it does after a cardio workout, I'm thinking how this girl's skin, under the police car's pulsing red lamp, matches almost exactly that horrible giant pink t-shirt she's wearing with baggy jeans. That's right! He just opened up on us! The white guy with the smashed leg has lurched over, flanked by another cop, pain streaked across his crinkly leather face, as he points to the weaselly motherfucker gunman who was being pushed into the back of the squad car. This lady saved my life! My hands are shaking, and I'm fervently wishing I hadn't run out on miles. Even a tepid fuck from an immobilized prick with a bad back would have been preferable to getting caught up in this bullshit. Now I'm being guided into the back of another squad car, the officer saying soothing things in such a strong Latino accent, I can hardly make it out. I get that they are taking the Cadillac, and I hear myself mumbling something about the keys probably still being in the ignition, and that my friend Grace Carrillo is an MDPD officer working in Hialeah. Our car pulls off, the fat chick riding shotgun, craning her blubbery neck around, telling me and the dikey cop in some folksy Midwest accent, that's the bravest thing I ever did see. I don't feel brave at all, because I'm shaking and thinking, what the fuck was I doing opening that door? And I kind of pass out or drift away for a few moments or whatever. 
And when I'm aware of where I am, returning into the garage by Miami Beach Police Station on Washington and 11th, a TV breaking news camera crew are here, moving aside as we go through the barrier, and the dikey Latina cop is saying, Those assholes get quicker all the time. But in an observational way, without resentment. As if on cue, I turn to the window to see a camera lens sticking in my face. The fat chick in the pink, her glassy eyes going from me to the reporter, shouts, almost in accusation, It's her! It's her! She's a hero! And my reflection mirrored right back in that camera is telling me I'm looking pretty fucking bewildered. I realize that I need to butch the fuck up here. So when the fat pinko says for the umpteenth time in that simpering fey voice, Gosh, you really are a hero! I'm feeling a little smile playing on my face. And I'm thinking to myself, Yeah, maybe I am. Thank you so much for coming in, Irvin. You've basically just got off the plane from Miami, haven't you? Yeah, uh, from Chicago. But, yeah, so it's uh, basically off the plane, kind of maybe a couple hours, sleep at the hotel and then uh, down here. And you're embarked on a sort of, essentially, a kind of world tour now. Yeah, I'm from here to uh, to France and then back here again uh, and all over the UK, up to Scotland, uh, sort of uh, Liverpool, Bristol, um, Brighton, uh, and then I'm, uh, I go to Spain, to Barcelona, and then I'm right out to, I think, back here for a couple of days and then right back out to uh, New Zealand for a bit and then to Australia and then to Los Angeles and then back to Chicago. <laughs> so you won't, six weeks later. won't see Chicago for, for a little while. I will not, no, no. <laughs> now, I mentioned Miami because, you know, even when you're in the States, you're peripatetic even there, aren't you? You kind of split your time between the two places and your new book is, is set there. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, um, I'm like one of these migrating birds, you know, when it starts to get cold, I just head south, basically. And I've been in Miami most of the year. I've been there since Christmas and just got back to Chicago about a week ago. And, yeah, and uh, the book um, is set in Miami, which is weird because it's the second book that I've done that's set in Miami. And um, I find it much more easier to write about than I do Chicago. And I think the reason is that uh, Miami is very much a kind of new city. It's a developing city. It's kind of, it's emerging before your kind of eyes. So there isn't really a... There's a kind of route in for everybody. It's not sort of ossified uh, like like Chicago. I mean, Chicago, there's a lot of great writers in Chicago, like, you know, sort of uh, Bill Hillman, uh, Don DeGrazia, Joe Mino. And these guys have got the city in their kind of blood, basically. Mm. They're steeped it's in the it. It's the city of Bello as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, you know, it's, um, and, you know, Studs Terkel and Nelson Olger and all this. There's a, there's a kind of this sort of tradition that's very much there and, and because it's it's very hard for an outsider to um, to write about somewhere like that as authoritatively as somebody who's kind of steeped in the whole traditions of it. Whereas Miami doesn't have that. Miami's just basically everybody's just kind of um, heading there. So my, my kind of view of Miami is as valid as anybody else's who's just off mm. the boat or off the plane, basically. So the, yeah, so it's, it's a much um, it's a much more kind of. Um, Kind of, it's forming basically. It's you know, it's not already sort of there like Chicago. So tell us a bit about the the new book. Let's start with its uh, weird and wonderful title, "The Sex Lives of Siamese Twins." How come? Tell us. 
I kind of, uh, I, I don't know where, where that really came from. Um, and uh, I haven't really, you know, had much kind of obsession or interest in Siamese twins. But uh, I, I, thought, I thought about how, you know, what it would be like to be a sort of... Um, a twin when you didn't get on with your other twin, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If you were attached to somebody. And um, I remember the uh, the Farley brothers did that film, uh, Stuck On Me, which was kind of, you know, sort of um, a kind of kind of slapsticky, comedic um, sort of, uh, you know, sort of look, look at that kind of thing. But I thought it was kind of just an interesting metaphor for, you know, if, if, some, if people were very close to each other and a kind of... Um, you know, we're compelled to be close to each other, and it's basically the kind of the kidnapping relationship that they get into. You know, which is when you kidnap someone, you assume complete and total responsibility for them. So it's a kind of very, um, it's a very kind of uh, radical thing to do. You know, not just for the person, but also for yourself and the responsibilities that kind of the weird responsibilities it confers on you. You know, so you're you're very much um, attached to them. As you see, you know, the, the, in, in the book that um, I think it's Lucy who's a kidnapper, she becomes very much, you know, very, just as much a prisoner in a lot of ways mm. as um, Lena, the person she's kidnapped, because they're kind of, uh, you know, they're, you're so, you become so bound up with that person in their, in their life. And I really thought, I thought, well, why not just have a couple of, because, you know, there's always, there's always these kind of big, sort of kind of weird breaking news stories in America, these human sort of interest stories that completely that are completely hyped up and that everybody gets involved in everybody gets involved in the narrative of them. It's such a TV oriented society. So I thought why not have this going on in the background? You know, this this actual real case of Siamese twins that these two girls who have entered this relationship are continually referencing. You know, and it's kinda of almost running parallel to their own yes. narrative. I mean there are very, very strange pair aren't they they're at completely sort of opposite ends of the spectrum there's lucy who's a kind of fitness trainer personal fitness trainer who is really into into hard ass training as as she calls it and then there's lena who is overweight unfit unhappy i mean they couldn't be more different these two women yeah i mean i think they've both um they've both coped with um with adversity in their lives in different ways, you know, and and it's it's very much um, it's very one one has seemed to, has seemed to have kind of coped in a and I said a, a terrible thing happened to her when she was she was younger, but she seems to have coped in a very positive way in a very kind of um, you know taking control way, but in some ways she hasn't really she's not actually addressed what's kind of um, what's happened to her and, and she's put up this very hard front as a way of not kind of um, doing that. Uh, whereas the other one hasn't really had this, the same kind of trauma, but has been kind of undermined by, you know, the the, the sort of um, the relationships in the house that she's grown up in and has become this this very kind of... Um, a very talented person who's, you know, who's... Um, who's kind of like a lot of people who don't come from a background where um, where talent's encouraged feels feels very kind of feels very guilty about that talent and is easily manipulated out of it and out of expressing it or out of investing in it and because of that is very depressed as a result and uh, and food and overeating is our kind of way of uh, getting that kind of control so there's there's this kind of perennial battle for control you know and it's based around all these things like kind of um, there are such big American obsessions and such big Western obsessions really like food and body image and, and uh, control you know so this is the kind of 
almost like this kind of battleground that they're having, but it's 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 more than just a battleground. It's an actual um, it's an actual exploratory thing that they're kind of helping each other as well. I mean, this comes up so often, doesn't it, in your books? You write about people in intensely sort of extreme emotional states under duress, taking things right to the edge, and often with this sort of almost kind of caperish comic kind of violence or you know a, a sort of crime element yeah well to me it's like you know the the drama for me always in the story always comes out of the characters and um i think what i like to do is to catch characters at a bad time you know i mean it, it's like whether you know the <clears throat> most of the time you know you've seen you know you see, you, you hear from the backstory that they're functional and uh, they're, you know they're, they're relatively kind of okay and happy and get normal life most of the time. But I like to get them a crisis point. The characters, you know, whether it's um, you know it's like um, Lena having this breakdown or Lucy having this kind of sort of um, being in this kind of sort of. Uh, you know, this emotionally intense kind of mood that she's got herself into. Or whether it's like guys, you know, at Edinburgh on heroin for having a really bad year on drugs, or whether it's, um, you know, Bruce Robertson and Phil having a mental breakdown. You know, get them when they're having a really bad year or a really bad time or a really bad week and get them with someone else who's also having a bad time but in a different way. Mm. And to me, that's where, the, that's where all the human dramas come from. I mean, most of the time... Most of the time we're all okay and we you know, we all get along fine. But um, if we're having a bad day when someone else is having a bad day, then you know you, you've got something that's kind of um, there's you know potentially very distressful and you know potentially horrible, but also potentially very interesting. You know potentially very funny and uh, potentially very enlightening as well. Because I think that's where we we learn the big lessons in life through these kind of dramas and conflicts. You know, the, we don't really learn the big lessons in life just by kind of going through it and sort of everything. You know, sort of um, doing you know, everything working and ticking over like it's meant to. Mm. That suggests when you say that, you know, that there are lessons to be learned and that, that, you know, in extremis, you might actually get the chance to learn them. But these characters you put in these terrible situations or find in these terrible situations, there is a way through. There is a kind of, there is a sort of respite from it. There's a sort of way through the kind of mania and difficulty. Yeah, I mean, I think what what they're really learning is... um it's kind of to to trust each other and to trust their own emotions and to trust their own sexuality and their own sort of um, their own kind of their own instincts really and you know it's something that you know one one of them has has just set this kind of blueprint and forged herself in this this sort of way and the other one has kind of gone gone you know so so she's kind of negated her feelings and her, and, and all these um, issues that are internal to her in that way. And the other one is all is, is kind of done. It's similar in a way, but it's, it's kind of just not got in touch with, with, with who she is or what she is too, you know. So and it's been on this kind of this kind of doomed quest for approval. It, you know, they're they're both in this. Um, you know, they're both in this position where they can actually learn um, through this relationship they're having and learn through each other. You know, about about their own kind of nature. It always seems to me uh, that reading all your books that you're having. A lot of fun writing them. Is that is that fair, or is that just something you've worked very hard to make us think? Yeah, I mean, I do enjoy writing them. I mean, I, I kind of, um, I think that uh, you have to really, if you're writing a novel in particular, because you're going to spend such a long time with these characters on and on the story. Uh, no matter how distressing it gets, or how many bad places you take them to, you've got to actually enjoy doing it you've got to like the characters you've got to enjoy the, the process and you've got to have um, I mean not necessarily like them but you've got to have an empathy for them you've got to have an understanding of how they got to that point you know and um, 
and have some kind of um, and have some kind of appreciation really of their humanity. You know, I don't, I don't think you can make them into um, into real, really kind of sort of bad kind of cartoonish people. Otherwise, it just doesn't really kind of work mm-hmm. on the page. The story doesn't come over. You have to give them something that um, even when they're at their worst, you have to give them something that they're kind of groping towards. That's that's um, you know that, that expresses that kind of humanity that they have. It's interesting, of course. You've you've set this book as you said your second novel set in Miami, and it's your it's your ninth novel, um, all told. And of course, last year we were reading Skag Boys. You know, it was Skag Boys that was taking us back to the milieu of chain spotting and the characters and the place that you're so associated with. And at the same time since then, we've had the, the film of Filth coming out. Uh, there's a lot going on and a lot of different parts of your, your work, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, it's nice to do something that, I mean, it's, I mean, Skag Boys was great fun and it was, it was a fantastic book to write and it was great to be back with those characters again. And uh, I had, had tremendous fun on Filth. Um, working with John Baird and James McAvoy, and uh, you know all the all the other sort of fantastic um, producers and actors that we work with, and uh, but it's nice to do something that feels very contemporary, rather than kind of sort of you know that rather than kind of retro sort of um, again, you know. So it, it is good. It feels um, and it's nice to kind of uh, as much as I do like a lot of the old characters and bringing them back and putting them in new situations. It's nice to have two completely new characters and um, also new character. you know, it's like me being this kind of middle-aged Scottish guy. It's really interesting to write about kind of two young American women. Uh, and it's just uh, it's just an interesting um, departure for me personally. But it's also, it's also nice to move into a, just a whole different social milieu in that way. You have been kind of immensely prolific recently, and I think there's another book already in the pipeline, isn't there? Yeah, um, the, the, it's like the the return of Juice Terry uh, from Glue as a taxi driver, which is kind of um, it's a very it's a very very dark comedy. I think it's probably um, it's probably the funniest book I've written, but it's also one of the darkest and sickest I think in uh, in a lot of ways. And I think that um, again, it's you know it's, it's characters. It's like uh, if you get a character like Juice Terry, who's kind of out there already, and you put him in a a kind of um, a really sort of kind of strange pressured situation, then you're going to get a lot of um, a lot of darkness and a lot of humour coming out of that. We really look forward to reading it. I think you've been the most impressive jet-lagged author we've ever had on here. <laughs> All right, thanks. I'll probably, I'll probably have one drink tonight and fall apart. Like, well, <laughs> get some rest. Thank you so much. Good luck with your world tour, and we'll, uh, we'll see you again thanks soon. Thanks very much. Thanks so much for joining us and do come again next month for more interviews and discussions with your favourite authors. And don't forget, if you've missed any of our podcasts or would like to listen again, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud and at vintage-books.co.uk. Also on our website, you'll see full details of all Irvin Welsh's events while he's here in the UK. See you next month.